Our lesson of the day is Psalm 11, a version of which we sang earlier. I will read for you now. Listen carefully again to God's Word. This is uh, To the Choir Master by David. In Yahweh I have taken refuge. How can you all say to my soul, Flee to your mountain, O bird? For look, the wicked bend the bow. They have set their arrow upon the string to shoot in the darkness at the upright in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Yahweh is in His holy temple. Yahweh is on His heavenly throne. His eyes have gazed. His eyelids test the sons of men. Yahweh tests the righteous, but His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. He will rain snares on the wicked, fire and burning sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For righteous is Yahweh, righteousness He loves. The upright shall gaze upon His face. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank You for Your Word to us, preserved for us by Your Spirit. We thank You that You uh, speak to us now through Your Word. Consecrate us as living sacrifices. And grant that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Psalms 9 and 10, which, uh, as I explained several weeks ago, are actually one psalm, show us what it looks like when the foundations are being destroyed. If you recall that acrostic structure, the alphabet uh, structure of that psalm portrays for us, illustrates for us, foundations being destroyed. It looks like, in Psalm 9-10, it looks like the world has been turned upside down. It looks like Even the alphabet is falling apart. It looks like God is not seeing. It looks like He's absent. It looks like the evil are going to get away scot-free. Psalm 9 and 10 show us the devil's playbook and teaches us to refute those lies. The lies that God does not see. The lies that God is absent. The lies that God will not call account. That is the lesson that David teaches the nations, the lesson that David reminds us of as God's people in times of turmoil and chaos. Psalm 11 shows us a slightly different perspective on a very what appears to be a very similar situation. This psalm also deals with a situation in which foundations are being destroyed. And what are foundations? They're most likely the the pillars of society, the political uh, and religious leaders and, and institutions, principles of law and order, customs, the whole way of life of a people. These are the foundations that seem to be falling apart in Psalm 11. And apparently, these, these uh, weighty, uh, things that are supposed to be firm, these things that we take for granted start to sway, start to shake. Everything starts uh, to move. 
And David, but David, in, midst, in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of this uh, upheaval, he begins the psalm with an assertion of unshakable confidence. In Yahweh, I have taken refuge. David has learned the lesson of Psalm 2 that there is no refuge from the Lord's Messiah. There is only refuge in the Lord's Messiah. He's, he's recalling the lesson of Psalm 3 and 4 that the Lord is a shield around Him. And even though He may be surrounded by enemies on all sides, He can lie down and sleep unafraid because it is the Lord who is with Him. It is the Lord who protects Him. You might even recognize a little bit of an echo in Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the Maker of the hills and heaven and earth and everything else. David knows that his help is not to be found in the hills. Taking off, fleeing for the, the hills, taking off to the mountains isn't going to make him any safer because in the Lord, taking refuge in the Lord, he is as safe as he ought to be. David, like, uh, but David's friends are not so sure. His faith seems a little bit naive. They need to talk some common sense into David. They need to take him aside and put their arm around him and give him a little talking to, a little fatherly advice. Um, because this all sounds pretty suicidal, David, to just kind of brush off these uh, threats, these uh, attacks of the enemy. Come on, David. Perhaps they were thinking, um, you know, David, the, God helps those who help themselves. You, you really need to, you know, quit with the whole pious, I'm just taking refuge in God thing. That's not going to get you very far. That's going to get you killed, right? So they, what do they say? David, the wicked are closing in. You need to sprout some wings and take off. You need to get out of here, you bird. Fly away. Fly to your mountain like a bird. It's actually ironic that David here is compared to a bird. He is, after all, the sweet singer of Israel. He is, after all, the songbird, so to speak, who composed so many uh, of the psalms uh, that we that we have in our Psalter, and he often refers to himself as a bird. He refers to himself. He likens himself to an eagle mounting up on eagle's wings. Uh, Psalm 102 is filled with references that he's like an owl or a pelican or a sparrow. He's like a dove. He takes the wings of a dove. And even in uh, 1 Samuel, when Saul is chasing after him and he's fleeing Saul in the wilderness, he likens himself to a partridge. Why have you come out hunting a partridge? But here in Psalm 11, David, who spent so much of his life on the run, knows that running isn't always the right response. you got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them. And he knows that there are different reasons for running. Unlike so many in our culture, even in the church, David hasn't made an idol out of safety and comfort. He knows that by taking refuge in the Lord, 
He's as safe as he needs to be. He knows that there are far more important things in life than security and stability. And he knows that there are far worse things than persecution and death. David also knows that sometimes the temptations to fear, the temptations to run away and and be unfaithful in a particular situation, that sometimes those temptations come from well-meaning but misguided friends and allies. Psalm 9.10 is David's refutation of the propaganda of the wicked, that God doesn't see, that God won't demand a reckoning. But here in Psalm 11, this seems to be a response to his own friends who are urging him to flee in fear when the sky starts falling. So it seems that Psalm 11 is actually a response to his own friends and allies, much like Psalm 4 was, where they were the ones, his friends, his counselors, were the ones who were buying in to to the lies, to the propaganda of David's enemies. In this case, it's not the sky that's falling, though. It's the foundations that are being destroyed. They say things like, look, David, the wicked bend the bow. They set their arrow upon the string to shoot from the darkness at the upright and heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? You need to get out of here. There are many well-meaning, but I would suggest misguided Christians in our own day who say things that sound very similar. There are plenty of folks who think that the world is going to hell in a handbasket and who take a not-so-secret pleasure in watching for the fiery end of the world. There are plenty of Christians who constantly gripe or complain or panic every time their political party faces a setback or the forces of evil seem to score a win. The hand-wringing goes on with great intensity. There is a strong temptation even within, even among God's people, to head for the hills and wait for the end. That response is a major problem within evangelicalism. Fear, escapism, pessimism, retreat, self-protection. And I think that's the main temptation in this psalm. But there's also a ditch on the other side of the road. Instead of heading for the exits, There's also a strong temptation to hope in princes or to fight the enemy, whoever that may be, on their own terms with their own weapons. This is why the prophets are repeatedly warning God's people against trusting in other nations to save themselves from God's judgment. The prophets time after time remind God's people that the only way through a time of judgment is to take refuge in the Lord, to repent, to submit to His discipline. Isaiah 6 is a, provides us, I think, with a very clear illustration. Uh, it has a lot of similarities with this passage. If you recall Isaiah's uh, vision of the Lord in Isaiah 6 when he's commissioned as a prophet, we're told that it was in the year that King Uzziah died 
It was in the year that a major pillar of society had crumbled. Isaiah then, in that context, has a vision of the Lord in the temple of the King of Heaven. Similar language to what we see in Psalm 11. He is, sees the Lord high and lifted up, reigning on His heavenly throne. And in Isaiah's experience, the foundations were shaken. And the sins of the people, the sins of Isaiah, were laid bare. Everything was exposed by God's holiness. And so God, Isaiah, cried out for mercy and cleansing. He took refuge in the Lord. And a coal from the altar was touched to his lips. And his lips were cleansed so that he could proclaim God's judgment and the new creation that would follow. A very similar scene uh, to what we see here in Psalm 11. And one of the lessons of Isaiah 6 is this. That if the foundations start moving under our feet, it's probably because God is doing some political and societal remodeling. When the sky starts falling, it's usually God who's running the jackhammer. What God? What is God doing when the foundations are being destroyed? What is God doing when everything starts turning upside down? David provides the answer in verse 4 of Psalm 11. What Isaiah himself sees. God is in His holy temple. God is on His heavenly throne. He's testing the righteous. He's working out His judgment on the wicked. Now, when we hear this uh, statement, Yahweh is in His holy temple. Yahweh is on His heavenly throne. That may not sound like good news to us. That may sound like bad news. Well, great. Good for God. Right? That He's up there in heaven and light years away from the, the, you know, the trials and, and afflictions of what's really going on down here on the earth. That doesn't maybe strike us as good news. But in fact, it absolutely is good news. This is good news for us. This is a consolation to the righteous and a warning to the wicked. God is reigning from heaven. God sees everything. Nothing is outside of His supervision. Nothing is outside of His sovereignty. God's heavenly throne speaks of His transcendence over man, yes, but not His distance. It speaks of His universal authority over all things. And from His heavenly throne, God is shaking down cultures. He's shaking down governments and nations in order to rebuild them according to His design. The anointed Son breaks the nations with His rod of iron. He dashes them to pieces like a potter's vessel so that the kingdoms of this earth may become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom of God. A kingdom which crushes every other kingdom. A kingdom that cannot be shaken. And as John sees at the end of the book of Revelation, the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, is coming down out of heaven. Here and now, heaven is coming to earth and every other kingdom will either kiss the sun or perish in the way. So the message of, of the Scriptures, the message of the psalm is don't despair. Don't cower in fear. 
Don't head for the hills and check out. Don't also don't trust in princes. He is the one alone who reigns from heaven. Gaze upon the Lord who alone rules from heaven. Gaze upon the Lord in his holy temple. Well, that, that sounds great, but the question still lingers. What can the righteous do? When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Right? We're very frag, this is a pragmatic American type question. Don't tell me just to pray. So irrelevant. Right? I want to do something. What can the righteous do when the foundations are being destroyed? Should we interpret Psalm 11 as a call to retreat in times of persecution and upheaval? Does taking refuge in God mean that we simply hunker down and watch the world burn? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Christ has commissioned His church to disciple the nations, not to batten down the hatches and wait for the end. And church history is filled with stories. Scripture itself is filled with stories of God's people who saw social upheaval, natural disaster, persecution, not as reason to run, but as a golden opportunity to advance the Gospel. Christians have often been the ones who stayed behind to minister to the sick and dying during outbreaks of plagues in times past. Missionaries like Patrick, Boniface, and countless countless others eagerly took the Gospel into the darkest places filled with the most hostile peoples. In fact, many a missionary in the 19th century sailed off on a ship to a remote destination with his belongings packed not in suitcases, but in his own coffin, knowing the end that awaited him, eager to face whatever, whatever would come for the sake of the expansion of the kingdom. The church throughout history has often been forced underground, sometimes quite literally, by tyrants and oppressive regimes. From the early church in the catacombs of Rome to the underground church in China and many other uh, Asian, Central Asian nations. But those churches, even in a state of persecution, even in the underground, those churches were not passive and weak, but thriving, growing, undermining their persecutors. Because they knew, they knew this central truth that the Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord is on His heavenly throne. And Jesus promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against His church, which assumes that the church is on the offense. The church, it assumes that the church is attacking the gates, storming the gates, and that the gates will not prevail against the church. The church's proclamation and embodiment of the Gospel is most needed when everything else seems to be coming unglued. The church's prophetic witness in counter-cultural life needs is most needed in times of confusion and chaos. The love of the body of Christ 
to, for one another and for the world is most needed in times of hostility and division. But any effort, any effort for societal renewal, for cultural transformation will only be successful if it is predicated upon taking refuge in the Lord and the refusal to fight with carnal weapons. The vision of God in His holy temple is at the heart of this psalm and it is the foundation for any successful God-honoring cultural transformation. Worship is at the center of the renewal of culture. It must be. It has to be. It is only by taking refuge in the Lord, by looking to Him for our salvation, that we will have any success in redeeming and rebuilding culture. And notice how the psalm takes this theme of seeing and brings it around full circle. How does the psalm begin? In verse 2, it begins with, Look at the wicked. Behold the wicked. And then, in verse 4, David says, No, don't look at the wicked. Look at the Lord who reigns in heaven. Look at the Lord who is in His holy temple. Don't fix your eyes down here. Don't fix your eyes on the wicked. Fix your eyes on the Lord in heaven. And then we see that it is the Lord who sees. It is the eyes of the Lord that become the focus in the second half of the psalm. It is the the Lord's eyes have gazed. They have studied. They have observed carefully. His eyelids test the sons of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. The Lord is testing. The Lord is examining. The Lord is judging. And that judgment has the result of bringing punishment on the wicked. But for the righteous, there is the promise that they will gaze upon the Lord. The circle comes all the way around. The Lord's eyes gaze. They look intently. He's fully aware of what's going on. Even He even uses His eyelids to examine the sons of man. He squints, uh, so to speak, to get a closer look. He can see through the chaos and the confusion to see what's really going on as He tests the sons of man. He watches to see how they respond. He finds out what we're really made of in times like this. He tests the righteous. But, but there's a sharp contrast. He tests the righteous, but... He pours out judgment on the wicked. For the righteous, times of persecution and trial are testing. And Hebrews 12 tells us that the Lord disciplines those whom He loves. The Lord tests us. The Lord refines us. And that's a, a, a way, a form, a proof of His, of His love. But He pours out judgment on the wicked. The, the secret ambushes of the wicked. Remember, the wicked 
put set the they bend the bow, they set the arrow on the string to shoot in the darkness of the upright in heart. The secret ambushes of the wicked are here contrasted with the open judgment of God on the evildoer. Everything done in secret will be brought out into the open. He said it says that he the Lord reigns traps. He rains snares or traps on the wicked. Fire and brimstone, which is literally burning sulfur. And a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. This language of judgment has a lot of similarity with the account of the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And that, that whole story has, has similar uh, parallels with this, with this passage. But there's an added irony to this uh, vivid depiction uh, of judgment. It says that the Lord will rain traps, snares on the wicked. And this is a play on, on the, uh, the earlier comparison of David to a bird. David was urged to flee like a bird. You need to sprout wings and fly. You need to get out of here because the wicked are coming and you can't do anything to stop it. But now David is refuting that uh, that lie. He is, he is, uh, saying he does not, I don't need to flee like a bird because the Lord is going to rain snares, literally bird traps. The Lord is going to rain bird traps on the wicked. It's, they're the ones who need to fly. They're the ones who need to flee because God's judgment is coming. And the Lord does this. The Lord brings judgment on the wicked because He loves righteousness. Because He loves... He is righteous and He loves righteousness. But He hates the wicked and those who love violence. Violence is hatred of life. Violence is an attack on the image of God. Violence is an attack on the God of life. So then to love violence is a refusal to fear God. And Proverbs 8 defines the refusal to fear God as loving death. So for those who hate life, for those who love violence and love death, God's judgment is simply granting them more of what they desire. As C.S. Lewis put it in The Great Divorce, There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. The biblical concept of love, that God loves the righteous, this is not primarily a statement of feeling or emotion. This is a statement of priority. A statement of allegiances. The fact that God loves the righteous means that God blesses and protects the righteous because He is loyal to them. He is faithful to them. He is committed to His people. Psalm 1 uh, ends with this statement that the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And Psalm 11 echoes that idea and fills it out. The Lord loves Righteousness. He loves everything about the righteous. He loves the way of the righteous. 
He loves their obedience. He loves their humility and service. He loves their worship. He loves their prayers. He loves their feasting and their fasting. He loves their living and their dying. The Lord loves the righteous and He tests the righteous because He loves us. He he disciplines and He tests the righteous because He loves us and because He has promised, He has determined that the our final destination will be in His to stand unashamed in His presence and to see Him face to face. So He is His love will not will stop at nothing to sanctify us, to purify us, so that we can enjoy His presence in glory. He makes uh, He loves us enough enough to make us lovable. And this is what it's all about. This is what all of Scripture, all of history are set on this unalterable trajectory toward the Lord of glory. God has given us a glimpse of His glory in the incarnation of Jesus. John tells us that no one has seen God, but the only begotten God who dwells in the bosom of the Father has made Him known, has revealed Him. We have seen, we've gotten a glimpse of the glory of God in the incarnation of Jesus, but we are still looking for the day when we will behold the glory of God in all its fullness, when He comes to judge the earth and to consummate His new creation. To gaze upon the face of God in this way has been called the beatific vision. Beatific comes from the Latin word to be happy or blessed. That's where the word beatitude comes from. To be happy or blessed. It's the immediate knowledge of God. It's the state of perfect blessedness and happiness. St. Cyprian wrote of the saved seeing God in the kingdom of heaven. He said, How great will your glory and happiness be to be allowed to see God, to be honored with sharing the joy of salvation and eternal life with Christ your Lord and God, to delight in the joy of immortality in the kingdom of heaven with the righteous as God's friends. This is the hope that steadies us in in times of uncertainty and affliction and testing. This is the ultimate answer to the question of the previous psalm. Psalm 10.1 Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? We won't always know why God hides Himself. But we do know that God always hides Himself in order to reveal Himself. The final destination of the righteous is God's presence. To gaze upon His face. Now we see through a glass dimly. We walk by faith and not by sight. But we have the sure and certain hope that one day we will behold His face in glory and we will stand before Him unashamed. We shall know Him even as we are known by Him. What will be What we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. 
clothed in the righteousness of Christ, sanctified by the Spirit, tried in the fire of affliction, all those who have taken refuge in the Lord, all those who have longed for His appearing, all those who have cried out for justice, all who have suffered and sacrificed for the, for the, the name of the Lord will finally behold His glory in all its radiance. It is then and only then that our deepest longings will be fulfilled. That every tear will be wiped away from every eye. That our greatest sorrows will be turned into joy. And the scars of this life will be glorified and transformed into an eternal testimony to the faithfulness of a loving Father. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for these great and glorious promises. We thank You that You are in Your holy temple, that You do reign from Your throne and that we have the promise, the assurance that one day we will see You in Your glory. That You will judge the wicked. You will set all things to rights. You will vindicate Your people and bring us into Your presence where there is pleasure evermore. Give us faith to persevere and to be faithful until that day. In Christ's name, Amen.